Jesus said in John chapter 5 that the scriptures testify of him. And the study of typology or types and shadows in the Old Testament is a fascinating way to learn about the nature and person of Christ. Today we're going to look at what scripture has to say about Jesus from the very beginning until his birth in Bethlehem as the Messiah. Hey everybody, welcome back to the show. This is the Dance of Life podcast and I'm Tudor Alexander. Thanks so much for joining me today. As always, make sure you subscribe on my website or my Substack because that is probably the best way for us to stay in touch. You just never know with some of these platforms, they either ban people or they make their content harder to discover. Let's put it that way. And I've already seen some of that going on. So make sure you stay in touch through my website or my Substack. Either one is fine. But today we are continuing our series on the Trinity. So if you are just joining, make sure you go and check out some of those previous episodes because we are moving, we're starting to move in a different direction. We're moving towards the Old Testament. So there's a lot of really interesting things to cover with the Old Testament as it relates to Christ's divinity and the Trinity. And so we're starting that today with the study of typology. If you've never heard about that, then today I think will be very interesting for you. But nonetheless, if you're just joining, a quick review, what we looked at in the past was what Jesus said about himself, what the apostles said. And of course, we looked at the original language, which is very important when you're studying these types of things. What did they actually mean? What is the context? How did, how did they use grammar to refer to Jesus when, when Peter says, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ? Are those two nouns referring to the same person? When Thomas sees Christ after the resurrection, he says, my Lord and my God. Are those nouns referring to the same person? These are very important things. And we looked at that in the grammar and how grammar, certain grammar rules like the Granville Sharp rule are unbreakable, which basically means that the Bible forces you into a trinity because it teaches that Jesus is God. That's the main point here. We even looked at titles like the Son of Man, the Son of God, that prove that Jesus is divine and God, to the opposite of what people who are arguing against the Trinity actually believe, which is that these titles, like Son of Man, somehow prove that Jesus is different than the Father, when in reality they actually prove the opposite, which is that he is equal with God and he is God, just like John 1 says. But we also looked at how the gospel is Trinitarian in nature, how it has to be a Trinitarian gospel, the, the interworkings of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and how that is essential to understanding properly the atonement, the work of God through grace, all these very important things. They, they have to be Trinitarian. So again, the Bible forces you into this viewpoint. So if all of this is new to you, or maybe you disagree with some of these things, then Please go check out some of those other episodes. This is a series designed to be cumulative, obviously, although today we are starting a different direction. But nonetheless, that's with the previous context in mind. So today we're going to see how through typology, which is the study of types and shadows, we'll elaborate on that in just a bit, how typology in the Old Testament is a constant message throughout the Old Testament and it is constantly pointing to Christ. Now, typology, what is typology? Well, a good example or a good definition, I should say, that I've heard is that typology is nonverbal prophecy. 
So prophecy is obviously verbal, right? It's written down. It's it's sometimes comes in pictures, visions, symbols, time periods. These are all prophecies in the Bible. But there's also a whole area of Bible prophecy called typology. Now, typology is the study of things that happened that actually like people, like Joseph, and seeing how these people are types and shadows and prefigurements for things that would come. Now, in general, most typology relates to Christ. So this is the important point. Think of them like hints and things that are mysterious or mysteries that are not necessarily very clear, but but they're hints. They point to something. In this case, the something is Christ. A good example would be Melchizedek. If you know who that is from the Old Testament, Melchizedek was a very mysterious figure that was both a king and a priest. And he he meets Abraham and he serves him bread and wine, which again, all these things are pictures and prefigurements of the Last Supper of Jesus's identity as the king and priest, as the king and priest. Now, some people say Melchizedek was an actual king and priest of Salem, which is Jerusalem, ancient Jerusalem. Some people say it was a pre-incarnate vision of Christ that appeared to Abraham because Abraham was blessed by Melchizedek. And, you know, basically if you get, whoever blesses you is greater than you. That's the point. And so there's a lot of debate on this. And ultimately, I don't know that if we have the actual answer, I tend to lean towards that he might be, I might've been a real person, but details of, of who he was were omitted from the Bible, from the records that we have, on purpose. That was by design, so that he would be a mysterious figure. But it doesn't really matter, because the point is that Melchizedek represents, or is a picture of, Christ. So that later, when you read Hebrews, you understand how it appropriates the Psalms that talk about, you know, Jesus being a priest after the order of Melchizedek. This mysterious figure that kind of Seems like he lives forever, like he's always around, he's king and priest. That type, that information is part of who Christ is. So this is a very interesting study. I really enjoy studying typology. I think it's one of the most interesting things to study in the Bible. So if you have never studied this topic, I highly recommend that you do it. Because it'll help really give you a sense of appreciation of divine inspiration, that the Bible is written by God. And... Really, it's just so profound. It's really just mind-blowing to see how many pictures of Christ there really are. But I want to go through a couple very important principles on typology and how to use typology that will ground us and ground your future searches and realizations. Very, very important. First one is, how do we use typology and how not to use it? There's a whole study on this. I mean, there's a lot of people who do studies on this. In fact, actually, Mike Winger has a great study on typology, has a whole series on typology that I recommend. He does a great job with that. But number one is this. Types are 99% of the time, most of the time, about Jesus, right? So when you have, for example, Catholic typology about Mary and using pictures and, and basically really stretching things to create pictures that really aren't there, of Mary, 
in the Old Testament and, and basically creating this whole theology, Mariology, using not scripture, but using allegory and pictures that really are being stretched to fit the situation. And that is not a way to do that because, again, scriptures testify about Jesus. They don't testify about Mary or anybody else. They testify about Jesus. I mean, literally every book in the Bible is telling you about what's to come. The greatest moment in history is God becoming man, taking on human form. So, of course, the Bible is like constantly telling you about that. And so typology can be very dangerous when we use it in the wrong ways, like the Catholics do with Mary. Another important principle is to start and, and align yourself with types that already are clearly used in the Bible. For example, I'll give you a few examples. John 3, verses 14 through 15. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus is making a, a comparison, and this is what types do. They're comparisons. There's type and antitype. The type is always the thing that falls short, whereas the antitype, meaning the thing it's supposed to fulfill, is, is, is that thing. It's like a normal, it's like when you walk and you cast a shadow. The shadow is very much less than, than the thing that's casting the shadow. So this is how types are supposed to work. And Jesus is making a comparison between just like how Moses lifted up the serpent and people are looking to the serpent to be saved. That was intended by God to be a picture of what would happen to the Messiah, meaning he would be lifted up on the cross and you have to see. Now, this is a spiritual type of seeing we're talking about here. You have to look upon the cross, meaning you have to see it because the soldiers at the foot of the cross looked upon the cross, but they weren't saved. At least not most of them. I think one of them said, truly this was the Son of God. But who knows if he was a true born-again believer after that point. But nonetheless, it's a, it's a spiritual seeing. So the first type is something physically that happened in the wilderness with Moses. That physical picture was a picture of a spiritual reality that would happen with Christ. You must look upon the Son, meaning you must see the cross spiritually for what it is, the propitiation for your sins. Not foolishness like the world sees it, like in 1 Corinthians 1.18, but to truly see it. And when you see it, you'll be saved. And also another one is Romans 5 verse 14, where Paul says, Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. So again, this is, we see here who was a type of the one to come, plainly spelled out for you that Adam was designed, of course, Adam existed, he was a real person, but he was also a type, meaning he, he was, God was working a nonverbal prophecy through Adam's existence. And we'll look at how that applies to Christ. But always start with what the Bible already plainly shows you as types. Don't try to be too inventive. And of course, searching for types is a really fun thing to do. That's why I said you could really spend quite a lot of time on typology. It's a really fun thing to study. But you also must be careful because, again, the mind is very creative and it can create all sorts of connections that really aren't there. 
to always use scripture as your basis. Always build a case, examine the context, both linguistically, historically, within the text itself, and be very mindful of stretching comparisons like the Catholics do with Mary. But the apostles were very clear that Jesus was the one that the law and the prophets spoke about, meaning that they recognized pictures and types and shadows. They were watching for these things, and they understood the typology, which is what we're studying today a little bit, is God's handiwork. It's God's design. It's God's mark or or stamp on history that all the things that are happening are predetermined, like Isaiah 46 says, that he declares the end from the beginning. It's, it's, It's a mark of God that these things are being fulfilled. It's like the types create this this longing, this vacuum. You see a picture of Melchizedek. You see a picture of the suffering servant. You see, you know, these various contrasting pictures. And then suddenly Christ shows up and he's the puzzle piece in the middle of the puzzle. And suddenly all those things get integrated into one person. It's really a profound thing. It's kind of like in music. I don't know if you play a musical instrument. I've played the piano for quite many years. But when you, when you, Play a scale, but you don't finish the scale. You play all seven notes, and then you just don't finish it. Your body wants resolution, and and the resolution feels so much better when you've led up to it with all these different notes that just require resolution. So if you know if you've played music, you know what I'm talking about. But in fact, there's a funny story about Mozart, that apparently they would wake him up. His parents would wake him up by playing a scale and not finishing it. And so that would just just bother him so much. Somehow he was able to hear it or wake up because of that. And he would rush downstairs and just press the final note to finish it. So, you know, these types of things really play to the overall design that God has created through the Bible and through these pictures. So it's a very, very interesting study. But another, you know, I want to give you some more biblical basis for this so that you really understand that this is not, you know, some fringe thing, but really it's what the Bible does all the time. So we're going to look at a couple scriptures. In John 1 verse 45, um, it says, Philip and Nathanael said to him, we have found in him whom whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So they recognized that the law and the prophets testified of Jesus. John 5, verse 45, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you believe me, for he wrote of me. Now this this is a very important statement because there is some debate on whether Moses actually wrote the first five books of the Torah the Pentateuch. I believe that he did, and this is one of the simple proof texts that he did. And of course, there's a lot of archaeological evidence, but Jesus affirms Moses' authorship over the first five books of the Torah. So he wrote the law. We also have in 1 Corinthians 5 or 7, Christ being compared to the Passover lamb. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So Paul is making a comparison that the Passover 
is a type and shadow of Jesus. In John 1, verse 29, it says, The next day he saw Jesus coming, this is John the Baptist, toward him, and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So John the Baptist recognized the Passover was a picture of Jesus intended to, again, show an aspect of his identity. If you were with me through the Son of Man episode, especially, you saw just how complex Jesus' identity is. That's why all these different types, they show one aspect, or maybe two, or, you know, a couple, but they show some part of Jesus' identity. And then Jesus comes in, and he, and he wraps all these things together in his own person, which is just, it's really just so fascinating. Now, another interesting kind of tidbit is that in Bethlehem, where Jesus was born, that's where all of the, the Passover lambs were born and, and basically cultivated in Bethlehem. So isn't that a fascinating thing to, to realize? It's like, what are the odds, right? What are the odds that Bethlehem, where Jesus was born, very humble little town, that's where actually they would, you know, have the Passover lambs born. And then a year later, they would sacrifice them. Very, very interesting. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 4. And all drank from the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Again, comparisons to the Old Testament, like, for example, where Moses struck the rock and water burst out. That is a picture of the crucifixion, where Jesus was speared in the side and blood gushed out. But in the Old Testament, they, they drank that water and basically were saved from their, you know, from the heat and from death. And that physical thing that happened was a picture of this, the greater spiritual truth of Jesus' blood being poured out for the sins of the world. Very, very beautiful and fascinating thing. And Peter talks about the cornerstone, 1 Peter 2, verse 7 through 8. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, quote, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is Psalm 118, and that's in verse 22 that he quotes. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Now, this is another can of worms with reprobation and election, but you can see that Peter is appropriating Old Testament Psalms that talk about stones, the cornerstone, right, relating that to building the temple, to the spiritual reality that's happening through Christ, where he's the cornerstone of the new temple, which is a spiritual reality, which is the church. Not a denomination, not a physical building, but the fellowship of believers with Jesus. That's the new temple. That's the body of Christ. And just a little asterisk, if you've seen my end time series, then you know who walked into that temple and proclaimed himself to be God. But I digress. There are other things too, like in 1 Peter 3, verse 18 through 21, baptism is compared to Noah and the ark. For Christ also suffered once for sins and the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, uh, 18, yes, because they firmly did not disobey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is, a persons, were brought safely through water. I thought I was reading the wrong verse for a second. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, 
but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with the angel's authorities and powers having been subjected to him. Gosh, so much in these verses. It's just crazy how dense they are. But baptism, this is especially for Catholics and Eastern Orthodox, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. You cannot make an appeal to God for good conscience when you are an infant. You have to make a conscious choice to be baptized. Now, baptism, first and foremost, means an appeal to God for a new conscience. It's repentance. That is how you are baptized. The, the thief on the cross did not have a water baptism. Of course, the physical you know, tradition aligns with that, but it's not about the physical things. Very, very important. But Peter says baptism, which corresponds to this. Corresponds to what? Corresponds to Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. So the ark of the, the Noah's ark being in the flood, being safely brought through the flood, corresponds to baptism. It's a picture of baptism, how water, you're brought safely through water. And you're basically, it's a new creation at that point. It's a new life. Very interesting. These are all pictures throughout the Bible that are very, you know, this is pretty straightforward in that sense that you're not having to dig very far. Now in Hebrews 9, verse 23 through 24, it starts talking about shadows and copies. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. So things on heaven, or things on earth, like the tabernacle, like you know the, the temple, these are copies of the ultimate reality. The tabernacle itself is actually a picture of Christ, and we've talked about that before. And the sanctuary is a, plan, a picture of the plan of salvation. There's just so much in there. We'll talk about a couple of these things. But Paul, I'm guessing Paul wrote Hebrews, but Paul echoes this in Colossians, Colossians 2, verse 16 through 17, where he says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So again, these are shadows, the things that the Old Testament was painting and, and having people do. These are shadows. Now, very quick note, very important note. I talk about this in my Sabbath series. Let no one disqualify past judgment on your question of food, drink, regard to festival or new moon or Sabbath. This is not talking about the weekly Sabbath in the sense of the seventh day Sabbath. It's talking about holidays because th this entire conversation and the context people were trying to figure out, you know, what day is good to fast, what, you know, which is better Monday or Wednesday. Th these were debates among early Christians and they weren't, they weren't a threat to salvation. So Paul was just like, look, let, let, let there just be unity in the church. If you decide to fast, then great. If you want to fast on Wednesday, great. Don't, don't pass judgment on other people. Th these things that you learned in the Old Testament, don't be legalistic about it. You know, no, these things are shadows. So, very important, but I digress. Stephen's speech is another one. 
This is in Acts 7. I'm not going to read Stephen's speech because it's it's actually pretty long. He goes through pretty much the entire chronology of history. And the important thing in that speech, in Acts 7, by the way, if you want to go reference it yourself, is Stephen is leading up to Christ and his rejection by the Jews. And he has many comparisons where he uses, for example, Moses or Joseph, how they were rejected by their people. It's literally like a hall of rejection so that they understand, look, you rejected Moses, you rejected, you know, Joseph, you you know, there's so much, so many pictures in the Old Testament. And then you finally rejected your Messiah. All those pictures that were supposed to point to him and you did the same thing. You know, you're just stiff necked. Of course, they stoned him because of that. They were just enraged at the truth. But Stephen's speech is another great hall of typology where you can reference a lot of figures in the Old Testament and go back and, and read about those figures. Go back and read the, the stories of Moses and his life in Exodus and, and see what you can find about Christ in those. It's very, it's like an Easter egg. Of course, Easter, <laughs> Easter is kind of a pagan, pagan name. So I don't want to read too much into that, but it is like an Easter egg hunt where you're looking for little treasures in scripture. And that's why I think typology is just so fascinating. Now, Jesus's ministry compared, he compared himself many times to various types and shadows in the Old Testament. So again, you don't have to reinvent the wheel here. You don't have to dig very far. Just start with the things that are already provided for you. In John 1 verse 51 He says, and he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. So he's comparing himself to Jacob's ladder, Jacob's vision. People knew the vision. People knew that Jacob said like, truly, this must be the house of God. And he set up a monument there. And there's a way, like a gate between heaven and earth. There's a ladder. Like he couldn't understand what the vision was supposed to mean. But then Jesus comes in and appropriates it to himself, which is just so fascinating because now you go back to that and say, okay, what does that mean? Well, first off, Jesus is the gateway between heaven and earth. He's the one that you access God through. And when when Jacob said, truly, this must be the house of God or the house of God must be here, what does that mean? Well, the cornerstone that the builders rejected has become, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Jesus is the cornerstone of the new temple, which is a spiritual reality, or the house of God. Spiritual reality. Do you see how it all applies? And and now when you go back and you read that, you're like, oh, this is, this is what it's pointing to. And you get excited for the New Testament. So it's just so cool. In John 2, verses 18 through 19, this is echoed. Jesus talks about the temple. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And John comments in verse 21, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. So again, the body of Christ is the temple, and that takes on a spiritual meaning in the New Testament. But in Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 20, with again, Hebrews is full of typology. These things are also echoed. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened through us, for us through the curtain, 
that is, through his flesh, since we have a great high priest over the house of God. So you see, all these things are pointing to the same reality. That the Jews were, were stumbling over the fact that God had used all these physical realities to actually point to a spiritual reality. The curtain that was dividing the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was between the people that you couldn't enter was designed to show you that God is holy and that you cannot approach him yourself. It was designed to create fear of God and and of his righteousness and of his justice, which is right. You should be afraid of that. This, God being just is the worst news there is. Because that means he, he has to punish disobedience. But then, you know, that creates a longing for a solution, which is what Jesus comes in to provide. And that's just a whole fascinating study in and of its own, how all these things create longings for the Savior, for a solution. And then Jesus shows up, and he's that solution. He's the one that you can go and talk to God now, because the actual curtain is Jesus's flesh, and that's been opened, literally in the sense that he's been stabbed and crucified, and spiritually too. So very, very fascinating study with this stuff. Again, we talked about the tabernacle being a type and shadow for Christ, the sanctuary, Jesus in John 6 talks about the bread from heaven. This is verse 32. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. Well, what's the true bread? For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So the, the manna that came from heaven, which is a supernatural reality that happened in the Old Testament, was designed to point to Jesus. Again, every book in the Bible has a picture that it points to Christ. It's really pretty fascinating. There's so many pictures of Christ over and over again. Another interesting fact is that Bethlehem, where Jesus was born, Bethlehem is house of bread. <laughs> Isn't that funny? I mean, that's just, again, what are the odds that Bethlehem, where the Messiah would be born, it's called House of Bread, and it's also where all the Passover lambs are born. Just fascinating stuff. I mean, this stuff is just like, it, it makes you marvel at how God predestined all these things to work perfectly. I mean, that's just, it's just beyond imagination how you could coordinate so many significant details together. It really is. So when people tell you that the Bible is not inspired, point them to typology. Point them to these truths, which are very simple. I mean, you can just look them up yourself. It's very fascinating. The odds that all these things are coordinated is impossible. It's impossible. There's too many variables and factors. You need an infinite intelligence to shepherd all of these things and to time them perfectly. It's, it's really beyond understanding. In Luke 4, verse 24, Jesus says, And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Now, this is a very interesting thing because, again, he's pointing to himself. All the prophets, Elijah, Elisha, they were received by the Gentiles. They were re rejected. David was rejected. He was, he was running away. He ran to the Philistines. Of course, David is a prophet. David was considered a prophet. Moses uh, killed an Egyptian. 
and the Hebrews basically tell on him. So he flees to Midian and then he's received again as the second time he comes, he re- he's received as the deliverer. So again, these are pictures of Christ. Joseph, he was rejected by his own brothers. There was jealous of him. He was received by Pharaoh, Gentile. And then he delivers his brothers. Abraham, he was considered a prophet. We looked at that in the past. He was a sojourner, so he was always on the move. So all these things are being fulfilled in Christ. So when Christ says these things and appropriates them to himself, then you go back and you search, okay, what was Elijah's life like? What about Elisha? David, how how does he picture Christ? That's the whole point. So you go back and you get a whole nother layer of understanding. In Matthew 5, verse 17, it says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have come to abolish them. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Very important. Fulfill. All these pictures were yearning to be fulfilled. Again, Christ is that puzzle piece that comes right in the middle, and you finally see the whole picture. Everything suddenly comes alive when Jesus shows up on the scene. It's very, very profound. In Matthew 12, verse 39, Jesus says, But he answered them, An evil, adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So again, now we look back at Jonah. And Jonah was designed to be a type and shadow for Jesus and what he would do, which is basically die for your sins and then resurrect because Jonah came out of the belly of the fish. Now there's debate about whether he actually died or not, but the point is that that was a picture of Christ. And and, and that's obvious because Jesus makes a reference to it and appropriates that to himself. So these are the ways that we, we look for typology where, where the Bible is very clear on it. In Matthew 11, verse 28, Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now in Psalm 95, and this is just one of them, this is verse 10, For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, this is Yahweh speaking, They are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. This is Yahweh God speaking. And again, it's about who is the one who provides you rest? Well, first off, the Jews were obeying the Sabbath as that was a unique belief in all of history that you would not work because God is providing for you. There's no other God that would ever provide for their people because there is no other God. There's only one God, and that God can provide for you. So you can, not, you can afford not to work for a day out of the week. That was the whole covenant, and the whole point is that God provides for you. But the Jews, the Hebrews, were, were Israelites, were always rebelling. And so in Psalm 95, he says, Therefore I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. And then Jesus shows up on the scene and provides that rest Rest from sin, rest from pursuing the world, rest from death and and the fear of death, rest from so many things. Very fascinating. 
And of course, there's also the Luke uh, 24 Road to Emmaus episode, where this is a pretty long episode. I'm not going to read it all. I'm just going to read just a, a bit of it, where basically Jesus gives them the the best Bible study probably in history. But he says, and he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. What I would give to be a fly on that wall. I mean, I'm sure you would too. Imagine Jesus himself opening up the Bible and giving you a Bible study on all of the things that God's word is supposed to testify of him. That is just profound. And that's basically what happens on the road to Emmaus with these people where they weren't, you know, they meet Jesus. And of course he hides himself from them at first. He doesn't allow them to recognize him, which is very interesting. And he asks them, you know, like, well, what's going on? You know, to basically test them. And of course they fail the test and he reveals the truth, which again points to this idea that the study of typology is throughout the scriptures. It's a, it's a very scripturally grounded thing. So when you're studying typology, don't feel that you're really making things up because there's a lot to study. The Bible's very forthright and upfront about types and shadows. So start with that. It's a fascinating tool. I really recommend it. So, you know, go and study, find studies on typology on the ones that I mentioned in this episode, and we'll probably go over a few of them more. Go back into your own Bible and look for these things and read more in depth and see what you find. Let the Spirit guide you. It's a, it's a fascinating way to un uncover the nature and person of Christ and to really get familiar with his complex identity because he is God and he is also man, a humble servant as Jesus Christ, a suffering servant, the propitiation for sins, and yet God, king, conqueror, all in one. It's, it's just a fascinating, fascinating topic. But both Christ and the apostles employed typology as a way to show God's plan being un, you know, revealed and unfolded through the ministry of Christ. That was kind of the authenticating mark that Jesus was fulfilling all the law and the prophets. There's nobody else in history that he that could even do such a thing in the correct timings and the correct pictures. And that was kind of God's mark on Jesus being the Messiah, the chosen one. It also confirms Jesus's divinity as God because there are many types that point to Jesus's divinity. The Messiah was an, ex people expected the Messiah to have a divine component. And we looked at this in the Son of Man episode, especially where, you know, the high priests tore their robes when Jesus appropriated the vision of the Son of Man in Daniel 7 to himself. Now, if you know that vision, the Son of Man gets worshipped and he rides on the clouds, which is which to the Jews at the time was very confusing because only Yahweh rides in the clouds and you're supposed to only worship Yahweh. And yet Yahweh is multipersonal and that is the revelation of the Bible, especially the New Testament. But remember, very important point, the typology can be misused 
And so you have to be very careful. You have to build a case, start with things that are very obvious, and learn to see how the Bible works in typology. And if you find something that's like, mm, that's really interesting, build a case for it. Don't be dogmatic about it. Typology is supposed to be about discovery and fun and learning about Christ's person and nature. So now that we have some clues about how to use typology, the question is, are there any clues about the Trinity and Jesus' divinity in the Old Testament, typologically? And of course, the answer is yes. That's what we have today's episode. When we look at multiple persons, for example, in Genesis, Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, this first sentence of the Bible, in the Hebrew, God, Elohim, is plural. But the, ver the word for created is singular. Very, very important. And in the next verse, we see the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. So you have God as a triune being already happening in the very first verses of Genesis. You have God, you have the Spirit of God, and of course we know from John 1, 1, that Jesus was the one creating. So you have the triune God, plural, created, singular, one being existing in plurality. Very, very interesting. Now, in, later in Genesis, in verse 26, we, we see this, again, this echo of plural, a singular being existing in plurality. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. When God speaks, again, it's Elohim, it's plural, but the word for said is singular, it, meaning it, it's supposed to relate to a singular person or a singular, it's used normally to relate to a singular person. But in this case, you have God being plural, and the, and the word for said is, again, singular. And he speaks in plural, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now, this is a very important thing because some people say, well, what about, you know, he's speaking to the angels. He, God is surrounded by all the heavenly councils who say, here, let us make man in our image. Well, there's a big problem with that. Actually, there's two big problems. First off, God counsels nobody. Isaiah 40, verse 13 through 14. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? So nobody counsels God. And God doesn't take counsel with anybody. God doesn't say, well, what do you think? What about angels? What, what do you guys think? Should we make a man in our image? So there's no, no counsel that God is taking. God is not trying to counsel anybody through this statement. We're made in God's image. But angels are not made in God's image. Humanity is made in God's image. So he is not speaking to the angels. We also know that Jesus became flesh. He took on human form. And the world was made through him and by him and for him. The cross was predestined. That's in Acts 4, verse 26 to 28. And so what all of that means is that, again, it all ties back to Jesus. The reason we look the way we look is because Jesus chose to reveal himself in that form. Jesus chose human form. And we were made 
after the likeness of that image. Of course, through the New Testament, through being born again, we're being conformed to that perfect image. But nonetheless, we were made in his image. This plurality is also seen again in Genesis 3, verse 22, after the fall. Then Yahweh God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us. Plural. In knowing good and evil. Now let us, now lest he stretch out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Which, again, another thing I'll talk about in my series on the afterlife and the immortal soul. If there was a chance for God to punish mankind with eternal suffering, you see it right here in Genesis 3, verse 22. In fact, this proves, if anything, that God is trying to avoid eternal suffering. God is kicking Adam out of the Garden of Eden so he doesn't eat from the tree of life and live forever in his sin. So anyway, that's another point. But again, plurality. Elohim is plural, and God refers to himself using plural words, plural pronouns. Now in Genesis 3 verse 8, you have, this is before, so again, you have plural and plurality throughout Genesis. But then in Genesis 3 verse 8, you see the sound of the Lord walking through the garden. And they heard the sound of the Lord, meaning Yahweh God, walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So again, you have the physical presence of God walking through the garden. He's not floating around, he's not an energy force or some sort of manifestation. He's a person walking through the garden. He's walking, meaning he has feet, he has legs. He's, he has a body. Now, that's a serious problem if you don't believe in the Trinity, because God the Father, who is beyond space and time, transcendent, nobody has seen the Father. How do you, what do you make of that? Because then Adam and Eve have seen God, obviously, because God has a body. So how do you reconcile that? This is Yahweh God walking in the garden. Yahweh God is walking in the garden. Not a different God, not the Son of God, not any sort of lesser divine being, but Yahweh. Yahweh is walking through the garden in a body. The only way to make sense of that is through a trinity where you have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, of course, that's not said here because in Genesis, we're just starting out. This is a picture. It's something to make you put a question mark there. Like if you've never read the, the New Testament and you're starting from the beginning fresh, you read this and you say, hmm, you know that God is supposed to be outside of time and space, but then you see that God is walking through the garden, so he has a body, that's interesting. And then later, which we'll talk about in the next episode with the angel of the Lord, you see that God has a physical body. And yet the angel of the Lord also refers to Yahweh in the third person. Well, wait a minute. How do you make sense of that? And the answer is you don't make sense of it unless you have a triune, multipersonal God, which is what the New Testament reveals. But there's plenty of types and shadows throughout. Now look in Numbers 12, verse 5 through 8. Again, you have these shadows of God having a physical body in the Old Testament. Numbers 12, verses 5 through 8. And the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent 
and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both came forward. So he stood. So Yahweh came down in a pillar of cloud, and he stood at the entrance of the tent. And he said, Hear my words, if there is a prophet among you, I, Yahweh, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses, he is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth clearly and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? So, you know, people are basically questioning Moses' authority, and God says, listen, he, you know, he's, I speak to him like a, a man speaks to his friend. He gets to behold my form. So God has a form? But then the angel of Yahweh also refers to God, Yahweh, in the third person. Again, these are all designed to, to confound you a little bit to make you want resolution because it doesn't make sense. And certainly we'll look at more and more of this in the next episode with the angel of the Lord. But you can see from the very beginning, from the book of Genesis, first couple chapters, that the Bible is very forward about showing you that there are pluralities within God. There's a plurality. Elohim is plural. The words for created is singular. God refers to himself as plural. He's not talking the angels. And yet he has a form that's walking through the garden that Moses perceives, that he meets with Abraham. I mean, it's throughout the Old Testament. So how do you make sense of that? You make sense of it with a triune being. Now, I want to top off with some types that you can look into. Again, these are great places to start and look at types and understand the nature and person of Christ. But we'll start with Adam. Adam was obviously the first human being, and we saw from Romans 5 that he was a type for the one to come. So when we look at Adam, we see that Eve was made from Adam, from his side, which is a very interesting detail. No word is wasted in the Bible, so you have to remember that. So details are on purpose. But Adam... Eve was made from Adam's side, and Eve was Adam's bride. Just like Jesus was crucified, his side was pierced, he was killed, and that gave rise to the church, which is the bride of Christ. Very interesting. Again, these are spiritual truths. Abel is another very interesting type. When basically the fall happened in Genesis 3.15, God said, I will put enemy between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So this is the first, we call it the proto-gospel, the proto-evangelion, the first announcement of the gospel. God is basically announcing the Messiah. So Eve expected to have a Messiah, to give birth to the Messiah. Now they didn't know when, but that was the promise from the very beginning. And so when Abel was born, he you have, again, another picture of Christ because Abel was righteous. He was a shepherd. That's a very interesting detail. And again, there's no details that are by accident. Abel was a shepherd. And when they brought sacrifices to atone, Abel brought the firstborn lamb, kind of like a, a shadow of Passover. And of course, Jesus is the Passover lamb. Now in Genesis 4, 4, there's another interesting detail, though, about this. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions, and the Lord had regard 
for Abel and his offering. Very, very interesting. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. Now, you don't really make, you don't really notice this in the English, but in in the original language, I don't know, let's see if KJV Plus has it. And also brought the firstlings thereof and had respect. See, it says has respect. Now, in the original language, the word is sha'ah. Sha'ah, which is a root word for yesha or yeshua, which is salvation. So, again, I'm not a Hebrew expert, but this is what I've learned. It's very interesting from Hebrew speaking people which is that when it says had respect, when God had respect or had regard for Abel's offering, the root word of that relates to salvation. And of course, Jesus's Hebrew name was Yeshua, which means salvation. So all these things are very tied together because God basically saved Abel in a sense, right? Abel was saved because of his offering, his firstborn of the flock. The lamb saved Abel. And he was righteous. Cain offered whatever he wanted. He wanted to do his own way. And he wasn't regarded or saved. So from the very beginning, you have the elect and the non-elect, obviously. And that's another can of worms. But ultimately, what happens? Well, Genesis 4.10, And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. Cain kills Abel. Cain was Abel's brother. Abel was righteous. Cain was jealous, and he killed Abel. So you have the first picture of the suffering servant. The the person who's righteous gets killed by his own brother. Jesus' brothers, basically the, the Hebrew Israelites, they betrayed him. Judas was an Israelite, a Jew. It betrayed Jesus, and the Pharisees were supposed to be his brothers to recognize him and they betrayed him and gave him up to be crucified. Abel's blood cries out from the ground. We know that Jesus cried out on the cross. Cain was jealous. The Pharisees were jealous. They were his older brothers in quotation marks, spiritually speaking. After killing Abel, Cain was exiled. After killing Jesus, the Jews were exiled. The temple was destroyed and basically... They were exiled throughout the world. Cain was also protected by God. And the Jews have been protected in a sense. They, they've been around for 2,000 years, one of the most resilient people. And the, God has allowed them to be, which is a very interesting parallel. So all these parallels can be drawn from the story of Abel and Cain, which is one of the first stories in the Bible. Very fascinating. I highly recommend you go read it yourself and see what else you can find. But you also have Noah. We talked about baptism in the ark, but Noah saved the world from judgment, basically. He was a kind of savior type figure. You have Melchizedek, which we mentioned previously, kind of this mysterious, potentially divine figure, but he was a king and priest that foreshadows Jesus's ultimate role as king and priest. You have Joseph who was betrayed and rejected by his brothers. Then they end up bowing to him, and he saves them. You have Moses, who was rejected by his own people. We talked about him previously a little bit. 
then he's accepted. Then they go through the Exodus to the promised land and they have the Passover. All of these things were types and shadows of the journey that we have from <laughs> the wilderness of sin, basically. In fact, it was actually called the wilderness of sin, the actual physical place, to the promised land, which ultimately is fulfilled when Jesus returns and ushers in eternity. Very, very interesting. You also have the Davidic kings and the Levitical priests, that whole area of study. Jesus is the eternal king and the high priest, the ultimate high priest. Solomon was a good type for, for that, basically the future reign of Christ being, you know, the, the king of all creation. Now, I'm not talking about millennial reign here, so if you are not familiar with that from end times perspectives, then millennial, the millennial reign is right now. Jesus is king right now. Very important. If you disagree with that, then go check out my end time series. I think you'll you'll learn quite a bit on that point because many people are deceived on the nature of the millennial reign. But nonetheless, Solomon was a type for Jesus's future eternal reign, the, the conquering king and Messiah that would rule forever and ever. You also have prophecies, lots and lots of prophecies. Matthew 5, verse 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. We talked about this, and what does it mean to fulfill? Well, you have the law. The law needs a savior because the law is bad news. The law points you to the need for a savior. The law is death, and the savior fulfills that by bringing life and salvation from the law. You have the prophets. You have specific prophecies in the prophets, both nonverbal, like we talked about, how they're pictures of Christ, and also messianic prophecies like in Isaiah or Micah. Uh, you have things like types that we just talked about, all the things I just listed off. And these are just a few guys. I mean, there are just so many. You really owe it to yourself to do your own investigation. You have, for example, Matthew 2, verse 3 through 6, where Herod is announced. When, when Herod, the king, heard of this, he was troubled and all of Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes and people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for among you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And remember, Bethlehem is both the house of bread and also where the Passover lambs are born. And this was from Micah. Uh, chapter 5, verse 2. But you have even the Targum, which is a non-inspired source. The Targum assesses that the, the verse in Micah I just quoted, 5, verse 2, that's quoted here, actually, is about the Messiah. So you have all these prophecies that are both verbal and nonverbal. You have other prophecies, for example, Matthew 4, verse 12 through 16, now, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum in the sea and the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee and the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the, re in the region of the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. This was in Isaiah uh, chapter 9, I believe, 1 through 7. 
And so these are prophecies that are given about the coming Messiah, who again has human qualities, but also divine conquering king slash ruler qualities. Matthew 21, verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus sent a disciple, saying to them, Get into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king comes to you. By the way, king... Christ is king right now, another proof that the millennial reign is not in the future. Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The Jews who still are waiting for the Messiah really have to get familiar with Zechariah verse, uh, chapter 9, verse 9, which is what this is quoting, because that was fulfilled 2,000 years ago. Jesus rode on a donkey through the gate. Now that gate is sealed today, so it's not going to happen. They may try to forge it somehow. And, you know, maybe they'll have the Yannicka guy who's superstar right now in, in Israel maybe do something. But look, <laughs> this was fulfilled 2,000 years ago. Very clearly so. But again, this was a prophecy that Jesus came to fulfill. He was just boom, 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 fulfilling this, fulfilling that, fulfilling that. And people were just like, oh man, Wow. All these things are popping, and it's like suddenly now you get it, and you tie all these things together. Other things like Psalm 22, that's a whole study. There's so much in Psalm 22 about Jesus' crucifixion and, and suffering. Isaiah 53 also. Countless prophecies about Christ. I forget how many there are. I think there's like at least 300 in the Old Testament. We're talking verbal prophecies. That's not including typology. <laughs> I mean... The Old Testament is literally overflowing with pictures of Christ. It literally is. But remember that the Messiah has a complex identity. Each of these pictures show a different aspect of the Messiah. You have the humble human servant. You have the propitiation aspect of sins like the Passover. You also have divine, king, priest, Son of Man, Melchizedek. Each of these types is on them on themselves incomplete in some sense because it shows one aspect of Christ's identity. When he became incarnate, when the Son became incarnate in Jesus, in the person of Jesus, Christ brought all of that together into one reality, one living, real person, which is very fascinating. So the Bible has been telling you that God is going to be incarnate in human flesh since the very beginning. Since Genesis 3.15, the Bible has been telling you that, that God is going to take on human form. In Revelation 20, 21 verse 3, it says that, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Well, who is coming to rule the earth? It's Jesus. Jesus is God. It's, 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 it's pointing to the fact that the triune God of the universe, the reality that we live in, the only God, is going to be physically present for everybody to marvel at. This is the entire point of being created. This is the entire point of existence. 
this is the singularity that all of history is leading towards, the return of Christ on the earth where God as a triune being will rule through the body of Jesus. Jesus is God, but he's also God incarnate through the body of Yeshua, of Jesus. So we looked for a couple things today. I hope that it's been edifying for you. We looked at typology. We looked at how you should use typology. We looked at several examples. We looked at some prophecies of Jesus. Again, Jesus fulfills all these things, and there's constant messages about Jesus' life and the quality and nature of his person and ministry. But you can't get wrapped up in only one side of things. Jesus is the humble human propitiation servant, but he is also the divine conquering God King that will rule when he returns. He's ruling right now, but he's going to rule on earth when he returns. He's Yahweh, and that's what the Bible forces you into. And if you can't understand that, then good. Nobody can understand that. How could you possibly put God into a box? But nonetheless, we can marvel at it. So I hope that it's helped you marvel at it. Go check out some of those types in your own Bible. Do some of your own research and Easter egg hunting and see what you find. Because typology is so much fun and it's so interesting to see the genius of God at work throughout history. Until next time, take care, stay stay healthy, take it easy, and God bless. Hey, thanks for being here. If you enjoyed today's show, make sure you hit that subscribe button. And if you want in-depth Bible studies, free resources, encouragement, or if you just want to get in touch with me, check out danceoflife.com. Until next time, God bless.